Hello and welcome to Queer Crime episode number 12. I'm your host, Patrick. Queer Crime is the podcast that discusses crimes committed against and committed by LGBT plus people. The contents of this podcast are not intended to offend anyone within the LGBT plus community or beyond. They're simply a way of reminding ourselves that there are some horrible fuckers out there, regardless of their sexual identity. Yes, you've guessed it. The language and content within this podcast is intended for a mature audience and those with an open mind. If you have bigoted views, stop listening now. Bigoted views are not welcome. Conversely, if you have nice views, comments or suggestions, please send them my way. You can find me on Twitter on crime underscore queer. Finally, if you could rate my podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts, I'd really appreciate it. So with that plea aside, it's on to the story. But as always, I'll start with what was happening in terms of the gay high holy calendar. It's 1993. Best play at the Tonys was Angels in America, Millennium Approaches. Outstanding comedy series at the Emmys was Seinfeld. Song of the Year at the Grammys was Tears in Heaven by Eric Clapton. And Best Actor at the Oscars was Al Pacino for Scent of a Woman. Before I move on to the episode, I would like to thank my sources which have helped me piece the story together. These were Village Voice, The Atlantic and Biography.com. Advance warning. This episode contains stories of a violent murder of a transgender man and highlights one of the most despicable hate crimes in the United States. It won't be suitable for all listeners. This is the story of Brandon Tina. Brandon Tina was born in December 1972 in Lincoln, Nebraska. Brandon was born a female and his name at birth was Tina Renee Brandon. But that is the only time I'm going to refer to Brandon's female gender or birth name in telling the story. Brandon was a trans male and out of respect for Brandon I'm always going to use the pronouns he and him. Brandon's father died in a car accident before he was born so he and his sister were raised single-handedly by their mother, Joanne. Joanne's job as a retail sales clerk provided a meagre income and they never had much money but they coped. From the outset, Brandon was perceived to be a tomboy because he enjoyed sports like football and weightlifting. He hated if he was associated with anything feminine and despised having long hair so he ensured that he kept his hair very short. As a young teenager, Brandon's struggle with his gender identity became more pronounced and he started to dress more masculine and deliberately presenting as male. Growing up as a teenager in the 1980s as trans and wanting to be called he or him was a brave move. The lack of awareness and support available to him, especially in somewhere like Nebraska, made him appear like a troubled kid who was argumentative and strong-willed. But this external image of being argumentative and strong was just an act. He was like that because he was struggling, understandably. I often find it laughable that most teenagers think that they have real problems as they struggle with popularity contests in school or being seen in the right clothing. Brandon's struggles, however, were real. He was battling with understanding his gender identity. There was little information available to him and it definitely wasn't understood in his hometown of Lincoln. So within his relatively small world, he was victimised for being different. He started skipping school which led him to start failing in his school subjects, 
Eventually, he was expelled from high school just three days before graduation. Educators sometimes exasperate me. As he grew in confidence, he had a string of girlfriends. This is hardly a surprise as Brandon was extremely handsome. But he never told any of them that he was trans, or still biologically female. Furthermore, his girlfriends never seemed to probe him on this. Why would they? He was a superb boyfriend, an incredible kisser. He paid attention to them, something very few teenage boys are capable of, and a description from his ex-girlfriends which I find very honest. He was also known for being able to please a woman, if you know what I mean. Good man, Brandon. That said, it wasn't all that rosy for Brandon. He might have had some girlfriends and was trying his best to ignore the haters, but because he had been kicked out of school before he could graduate, he had to resort to low-paying jobs to support himself, and eventually some petty crime like check fraud. Quite soon, his crimes caught up with him. He may not have had a high school diploma, but he did have a minor criminal record, and this was not going to open up a world of opportunities for him. Brandon decided that the best thing he could do would be to relocate, which isn't that unusual. Many LGBT plus people leave their hometown to come out, find like-minded people, make a new group of friends, satisfy their wanderlust, and ultimately use the opportunity to reinvent themselves into a person that they want to be. So he did just that. In November 1993, Brandon, now 20 years old and just a few weeks away from his 21st birthday, moved 100 miles away to a relatively small city in the same state of Nebraska called Fall City. Upon arriving in the Fall City area, he immediately found suitable lodgings with a young woman called Lisa Lambert. Lisa was a single mother in her 20s who had a young boy. Brandon moved in straight away and started settling himself into life in Fall City. At the start of December 1993, and only a few weeks after arriving at Fall City, he met an 18-year-old girl called Lana Tisdale. They quickly became infatuated with each other. As Brandon was new to the area, he didn't have any friends, so naturally, he became friends with Lana's friends. It seemed like things were looking up for Brandon. He had started a new life for himself, had a new girlfriend, and he was becoming acquainted with a new group of people. But by the end of the same month, Brandon would be dead. He would be murdered by two of Lana's scumbag friends, John Lotter and Tom Neeson. Brandon's life may have looked like it was going in the right direction, but unfortunately Brandon's plan to relocate didn't properly account for gainful employment, and he wasn't exactly flush with cash, so eventually he started to resort to forging cheques again, but he wasn't the criminal mastermind and he was arrested. On the 19th of December, Lana went to the prison to bail out Brandon, but when she arrived Brandon was released from the female section of the prison. This was the moment that Lana realised that Brandon was transgender and she ended the relationship with him. Brandon pleaded with her to keep this under wraps and he tried to explain the crisis he was in. However, even if Lana wanted to keep it a secret because of her feelings for Brandon, she couldn't. Details of arrests were habitually printed in the local papers and Brandon's arrest charges were printed along with his birth name, Tina Renee Brandon. After this, Lana's friends were disgusted and started treating Brandon badly. They started bullying him to tell them the truth. It was cruel and vindictive. Nobody should ever be forced to come out. Some of them were so angry that they didn't want Brandon in their group of friends anymore. They claimed it was because he had lied to them, 
and now that he had been outed, they feared for his life. But I'm going to call that bullshit, because they should have understood the horrible dilemma that Brandon was facing, and had continuously faced, throughout his short life. From my perspective, they lacked any form of compassion. Brandon tried his best to make amends by writing a letter to Lana to tell her that he was sad, that he couldn't turn things around, he didn't know how to make amends, but ultimately he felt that he had to leave. However, he didn't leave, not right away, and if he had left, he might still be alive. Lana's two scumbag friends who I mentioned earlier, John and Tom, also found out that Brandon was transgender. Being small-minded with fuck all else to do, they became fixated on him. They were determined to take responsibility to prove to everyone that Brandon had female genitals. They decided that they needed to get Brandon into a situation where they could satisfy their disgusting curiosity. On Christmas Eve they invited Brandon to a party, and when he arrived they shoved him into a bathroom. They secured the bathroom door behind him which prevented his escape. They secured Brandon's hands and feet, and then pulled down his pants and underwear to his ankles. At that point, John and Tom called the other party guests into the bathroom to see Brandon for what he was, a woman. Vile bastards. Brandon was traumatised. For reasons unknown, he stayed at the party, most likely to get over the shock and the trauma of what had just happened. But John and Tom weren't finished. They were becoming more drunk and more belligerent. They remained fixated on Brandon. They were riling each other with bigoted bullshit and eventually they dragged Brandon to the bathroom where they secured the door again. But this time, they started mercilessly beating him. Not satisfied with the pain that they were inflicting on him, the pair of thugs dragged Brandon out of the bathroom, dragged him out of the house, and threw him in the back of their car. I must admit, irrespective of the lack of education or awareness about what transgender actually meant, the other party guests are complicit in Brandon's attack. No one stopped it fucking cowards. With Brandon now extremely frightened in the back of the car, John and Tom drove to a remote area. When they arrived in their intended remote location, they stopped the car and they menacingly presented Brandon with two options. A. He could either be beaten and raped, or B. He could just be raped. At that point, John and Tom climbed into the back of the car and they took turns to gang rape. Brandon. When John and Tom rejoined the party, they acted as if nothing happened. Back to normal life for them. However, not for Brandon. In a matter of a few short hours, he had been through sheer terror. He had been undressed in front of party guests. He had been beaten. He had been kidnapped. And he had been gang raped. Brandon managed to flee the party by escaping through a window. And he ran all the way to Lana's house, where he told her and Lana's mother everything that happened. They encouraged him to report the attack. Initially, he was unwilling to do so, but he eventually agreed. Unfortunately, reporting the assault and the rape to the police would not give Brandon the support that he needed, and it only compounded his misery. On Christmas Day, he arrived at Richardson County's Sheriff's Office to report the assault. There, he met the dumbest cop that you'll ever have the misfortune of encountering, a total hillbilly called Charles Locks. The reason I'm so enraged by Charles Locks is because of how he spoke to Brandon. 
irrespective of your belief system, your views, your religion, where you grow up, your education and training, or lack of it, you should never treat another human being the way Brandon was treated, especially if you're in law enforcement and you're being paid to provide hope and protection to someone who has been through a violent sexual assault. However, you can make up your own mind about Charles. The transcripts of Brandon's report of the assault shows how unbelievably tactless and inappropriate Charles was. Brandon started at the beginning of the catalogue of traumas, and he reported the assault in the bathroom. The excruciating exchange in relation to this particular assault went like this. Charles. After he pulled your pants down, he seen you was a girl. What did you do? Did he fondle you any? Brandon. No. Charles. He didn't fondle you any, huh? Doesn't that kind of amaze you? Doesn't that kind of get your attention somehow? That he would have put his hands in your pants and play with you a little bit. You're all half-ass drunk. I can't believe that if he pulled your pants down, and you are female, that he didn't stick his hand in you, or his finger in you. Brandon. Well, he didn't. Charles. I can't believe he didn't. Uh, okay, Charles. So if I see a vagina, I should automatically stick a finger in it? What the fuck? Then referring to Brandon being raped in the car, the questioning went like this. Charles. Did he have a hard on when he got back there or what? Brandon. I don't know. I didn't look. Charles. You didn't look. Did he take a little time working it up or what? Did you work it up for him? Brandon. No, I didn't. Charles. You didn't work it up for him. Brandon. No. Charles. Then you think he had it worked up on his own or what? Brandon. I guess so. I don't know. Charles. You don't know. When he got in the back seat, you were already spread out back there, ready for him, waiting on him. Brandon. No, I was sitting up when he got back there. Charles. And you never had sex before? Brandon. No. Charles. How old are you? Brandon. 21. Charles. And if you're 21, you think you'd have trouble getting it in? You see, Brandon had never had sex before. His virginity had just been taken away from him by being raped by John and Tom. Charles, the ignorant cop, was asking if Brandon had any trouble receiving a penis at 21 years of age. Ugh, God. Then moving on to the questioning about Brandon being trans. Charles, why do you run around with girls instead of guys, being you're a girl yourself? Brandon, why do I do what? Charles, why do you run around with girls instead of guys, being you're a girl yourself? Brandon, I haven't the slightest idea. Charles, you haven't the slightest idea. You go around kissing other girls. The girls that don't know about you think you're a guy. Do you kiss them? Brandon, I have a sexual identity crisis. Charles, a what? Brandon, I have a sexual identity crisis. Charles, you want to explain that? Brandon, I don't know if I can even talk about it. Honestly, you couldn't make this shit up. Charles's treatment of Brandon was inhuman. Brandon had been beaten, kidnapped and raped. And Charles was essentially victim-blaming and asking shitty questions about how Brandon encouraged the guys to get hard, 
so that they could rape him. He was only interested in Brandon being trans. He wasn't remotely interested in understanding the rape or the violent assault. You often see caricatures of dumb police officers on TV programs or in movies. You think that it's just Hollywood being unkind for comedic effect. Nope, not at all. They exist. Charles Locks is the best example of an unsympathetic, uneducated, classless prick of a police officer. To add insult to injury, Charles waited three days before he brought John and Tom in for questioning. But the questioning didn't amount to much. They were allowed to leave because there was a lack of evidence. Of course, there actually was evidence. A rape kit had been taken when Brandon reported his assault, and this proved that he had been raped. But somehow, this rape kit was mysteriously lost. Give me strength. It gets worse. You might think that just because Lana's mother encouraged Brandon to report the rape, that she was supportive. She wasn't at all. She was a fucking bitch too. She didn't believe Brandon. She went to John and Tom to confront them about Brandon's rape and ask for their version of events, or so she says. But of course they denied it. She told them that Brandon had gone to the police, and then she told them to make sure that they had cleaned up any evidence, which they immediately started doing. When she saw that they were cleaning up evidence, she realised that Brandon was actually telling the truth. But of course, now the evidence was gone. And I don't believe for a second that she was clever enough to create this ruse to entrap John and Tom. It was just a way of helping them destroy evidence. Honestly, this story is full of stupid people. After the evidence was cleaned up, John and Tom were furious that despite warning Brandon not to go to the police, he had done so anyway. Three days after the attack, John and Tom were brought in for questioning by Super Cop Charles, but they were let go because there was no evidence. They were definitely not going to allow it to go any further, and they wanted to make sure that Brandon couldn't press charges. They decided to take the only logical step available to them in their feeble minds. They had to kill Brandon. In the early hours of New Year's Eve, John and Tom drove to Lisa Lambert's house, the house that she shared with her toddler son and her new roommate, Brandon. Also staying over that night was a young guy called Philip Devine, who was dating Lisa's sister. So in the house there was Lisa, her young son, her friend Philip and Brandon. John and Tom broke into the house and confronted Lisa while she was sleeping in her bed. They demanded to know where Brandon was. Despite being terrified, Lisa stood her ground and refused to tell them. She denied that Brandon was in the house. They didn't believe her. Tom searched the house and soon found Brandon hiding under a bed. John and Tom shot and killed Lisa, Philip and Brandon. They killed all three of them in front of Lisa's very young son. Tom then grabbed a knife and he stabbed Brandon in the chest to make sure he was dead. They left the house and drove home. They left the little boy crying on his own in the middle of the night in a house which had three dead bodies in it, one of whom was his mother. The following day Lisa's mother became concerned about Lisa when she hadn't turned up for work, so she went to Lisa's house but there was no answer. She knew something was up though. She could hear her grandson crying in the house. She entered the house and was confronted with utter devastation. She called the police. 
the police got to work and unsurprisingly didn't have much detective work to do to identify that John and Tom were the killers. As the investigation continued, the police had enough evidence on Tom, but not as much evidence on John. In order to ensure that they could convict both men, they made a plea deal with Tom that if he testified against John, they would not give him the death penalty. Being without conscience and thinking solely about self-preservation, Tom did just that. He testified against John. Tom managed to avoid the death penalty, but he was still found guilty, and in 1995 he received three life sentences. John was also found guilty at a separate trial, and in 1996 he received the death penalty. Eleven years later, in 2007, Tom said that he had lied in his testimony about John, and that it was unfair that he was on death row. Tom said that he had actually pulled the trigger, and he had shot Lisa, Philip and Brandon. John didn't do any of it. He was just an accomplice. However, as you've probably guessed, these two men are mind-numbingly stupid. And Tom said that even though John didn't pull the trigger, John still helped to plan the murders, and he was a willing participant. Therefore, the murders were premeditated. His plan failed. John's death penalty sentence remained intact. There have been numerous appeals since then, but so far, all of them have been rejected. As it currently stands, Tom remains in prison for life, and John remains in death row. Brandon's mother, Joanne, filed a lawsuit against the local police, and more specifically, against the dumb plank Charles Locks. The lawsuit went in Joanne's favour, and the police were found to be negligent for not providing support to Brandon during his time of need, and for not arresting John and Tom in a more timely manner following Brandon's rape allegations. However, Charles Locks was found not guilty of intentionally causing emotional distress. Honestly, what a fucked up legal system. But to be fair, I suspect it was the court's way of saying that he was so unbelievably stupid that he didn't know he was being unhelpful, nor did he realise that he was causing distress with his line of questioning. Either way, Brandon's mother only received about $17,000 in compensation. To boil your blood even more, a few years after Brandon's murder, Charles Locks was voted Commissioner of Richardson County. He has since retired and he drives a school bus. Would you let an unsympathetic arsehole like him anywhere near your kids? In 1998, five years after Brandon's murder, the Brandon Tina story was released. It was an award-winning documentary which featured interviews with many of the people involved in Brandon's murder, as well as photos and video footage of Brandon. The Brandon Tina story inspired some of the dialogue for the 1999 Oscar-winning movie Boys Don't Cry. Brandon is played by Hilary Swank, and she has been lauded as giving one of the greatest Best Actress Oscar-winning performances of all time. I would thoroughly recommend the documentary, The Brandon Tina Story, and the movie Boys Don't Cry. As details of the treatment of Brandon by Charles Locks became public, there was significant fury and backlash against the police. It resulted in police officers in Nebraska being fitted with wireless microphones so they could be monitored and held accountable for their actions and words. Furthermore, the basic law enforcement training is now an intense 16 weeks, and the training includes a viewing and a discussion of the documentary, The Brandon Tina Story. 16 weeks doesn't seem long enough for basic law enforcement training. If you want to do a degree apprenticeship to become a police constable in England, it takes three years to qualify. That's 156 weeks. The average law enforcement training in the United States is 21 weeks. It can actually take 25 weeks to do a web design course. I'm just saying. 
Before I finish up, I want to circle back to Joanne, Brandon's mother. She doesn't come across particularly well. I appreciate that she's lost her child, and that must be really quite grim. But she never seems to have accepted Brandon's gender. She has constantly referred to Brandon as Tina, and she still uses the pronouns she and her when talking about Brandon. Furthermore, when Brandon was buried in his hometown of Lincoln, Nebraska, she erected a headstone in Brandon's grave, which gave his birth name, Tina Renee Brandon. The headstone also has an inscription that says, Daughter, Sister and Friend. Not exactly allowing Brandon to rest in peace there, Joanne, are you? The world has progressed so much since discrimination against the LGBT plus community became illegal in many countries around the world. According to the United Nations, there are 195 countries in the world. Out of those 195 countries, it is still illegal to be a gay man in 72 of them. It is still illegal to be a gay woman in 44 of them. And any same-sex activity in 11 of them could result in the death penalty, imagine, in the year 2021. Even in countries where LGBT plus people are protected by law, they are still not being treated fairly or equally. Some people and some leaders of countries are dicks. Let's put people with outdated and harmful views, including world leaders, in a minority by showing solidarity towards LGBT plus people around the globe. You've only got one life. So live your life with sparkle and don't hurt anyone, please. Until next time.